Good afternoon, I'm Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. We are the host for today's program. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for our program, What is Going On in Washington, D.C.? We've got two terrific guests that I'm excited to hear from. To begin with, Sarah Binder, who is a professor at George Washington University. She's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. She's written or co-authored four books on legislative politics and other issues, including legislative gridlock and the increasing use of the filibuster. She's a frequent media commentator, and you can read her regularly in the Washington Post monkey cage. Um, and by the way, Sarah Binder got a PhD here at the University of Minnesota's political science department, which we are always glad to mention. And moderating today's conversation is my colleague, Catherine Pearson, who's a professor here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, professor Pearson's research focuses on the United States Congress, congressional elections, political parties, and women in politics. And I'll turn things over to my colleague, Professor Catherine Pearson. Great, thank you so much, Larry. Um, it is uh, wonderful to welcome back, even if virtually, uh, Professor Sarah Bender to the University of Minnesota. And I hope we can do this soon uh, in person at some point. But um, her legislative expertise, her research, and her vantage point from Washington, DC um, is we just are terrifically lucky to have her here today. So I wanna start uh, by asking you to assess the level of partisan conflict in Congress today. What are the sources of this conflict and how does the partisan conflict in the 117th Congress compare to this conflict in past Congresses and what are the implications? Great. Um, first, thanks so much uh, for including me. Uh, we talk all the time in my house about uh, Goldie Gopher, so this is just as close as I can <laughs> I can get. Um, great. So maybe it will be helpful if uh, when we think about partisanship to kind of set the scene of where we are today, and then we can zero in, uh, more in on, on uh, your specific questions. Keep in mind, we are in a period of unified party control. Same party, Democrats controlling White House, House and Senate. Uh, but we have historically slim margins in the House, just a couple of uh, seat advantage for the Democrats. Uh, and in the Senate, a 50-50, uh, pretty rare historically uh, split between the parties. So one thing we do know about unified party control, it does not last very long. Uh, and so that's always the context in which I'm thinking about uh, the dynamics here and the partisan dynamics. What's the level of partisan conflict today? Um, one, sometimes we talk about the parties being uh, polarized. We often talk about the parties being polarized. And it's helpful to think, what do we mean uh, by parties being polarized? And oftentimes we just mean ideological polarization, right? Uh, different views about the role of government. So an infrastructure package coming, so to say, down the pike. Um, how much should the government uh, be spending on roads and bridges, right? What's the role of government? Democrats more often would say a strong role, Republicans not. In terms of that polarization, we think we have pretty high levels of polarization, uh, both historically uh, and given uh, in comparison to recent years. But that's not the only way to think about partisanship. I think the one that rings a little more true to us today is what we might just think of as team play, right? Your team's for it, so my team is against it. 
And that's not necessarily ideological, right? It can apply to any issue, even if there's no kind of policy uh, ideological content to it. And in that term, we're also in pretty high, uh, high territory here in terms of conflict between the parties. Why is it so hard or why is it so high? Um, I think there's some long historical issues here, certainly change uh, in the South and the regrowth of the Republican Party in the wake of civil rights and voting rights in the 1960s and 70s, change the nature of who would run in the Democratic Party. If you were conservative, you moved into the Republican Party. If you were liberal, you moved out of the Republican Party so that today's Democrats and Republicans are, are sorted. That's a S-O-R-T. <laughs> ED, not sorted. Um, so that's one long-term trend here, right? There's very little ideological, we'll come to it, I'm sure, but there's relatively little ideological disagreement within the parties. There's some, but the differences between the parties are much bigger than the, than the differences within the parties. And the other cause here is certainly the rise in electoral competition, right? Uh, Francis Lee, our colleague, uh, as a legislative scholar has written about, right? The, the closer control is, uh, for your party, the more turnover there is, the tighter the electoral competition, just it seems to create incentives to disagree, right? And so if you think your party is going to be in control just around the corner, why go to the bargaining table? So there are long-term and short-term causes here, but it, it adds up to a kind of at times kind of toxic atmosphere uh, in Washington, even though they do manage to break through it uh, on big issues at times. Great, thank you. And I, I wanna to touch on bipartisanship soon, but first I really wanna take an example um, of something you mentioned that isn't necessarily ideological conflict, but may play into the electoral conflict, conflict or sort of the parties as teams nature of conflict. And that is, uh, Republicans' opposition to a bipartisan committee to investigate January 6th. So now it is a select committee um, uh, in the House chaired by, or, or excuse me, selected by Speaker Pelosi. And so could you talk about sort of the, the sources of the opposition from Republicans to the original proposal um, and, and how you think this will play out, whether that was a good strategy for Republicans or it might backfire, or if as opposed to this electoral consideration or this team consideration, there's something else also going on, which is a loyalty to former President Trump among Republicans. Oh, great. Now, I would start where you ended, which is to think about the outsized influence that the former president, this iron grip he seems to hold on elected Republicans in the House and in the Senate, and especially so across the House Republican conference. The issue originally was what type of investigation would there be uh, of the events, the violence of and the insurrection? They stopped the steel uh, riots on January 6th. There was a turn, as we now call it, sort of a 9-11 approach where there was Congress passed a law that set up an external bipartisan a commission and empowered it to investigate uh, what had happened and what led to 9-11 uh, and to come up with, with recommendations. Um, the House and the Senate, first the House, eventually came to a, an actual real bipartisan agreement before it came to the floor, uh, where there was equal representation of the parties on this external uh, commission of non-elected members. Republicans, even though one of them had negotiated it, turned against it in the House. 
and following, we think, a pressure from Trump because they don't want him investigated and they don't want their own roles investigated. And then a filibuster in the Senate, which which killed it off, um, getting very few uh, votes at all. So there's certainly uh, pressure coming from President Trump and the House Republicans and Senate Republicans who seem in fear of crossing him, even though he's no longer in office and even though no one really knows whether he will run again. That adds up to a pretty, uh, again, kind of toxic question. And for those who might have watched the hearing yesterday, uh, which will come to, I'm sure, um, very raw uh, testimony, very raw emotions on particularly across on the House side uh, between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, there was a nonviolent altercation, if you will, in the House Rules Committee, I think uh, last night, uh, might've been this morning, hard to tell on, online, uh, over one of the House, we'll call them the, in, who had called this akin to uh, a normal tourist visit. He was questioned pretty harshly uh, by Jamie Has a House member Jamie Raskin. Um, in the context, totally different, right? It wasn't about this was an appropriation spending bill. Um, so, what do we know here? The 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 intensity of the disagreements uh, and the just kind of broken relationships in the House has really um, taken a toll on that chamber. Although the Senate seems a little. Uh, not quite as toxic, uh, seem more concentrated in a handful of senators. Um, where does that leave us? Uh, a select committee where Republicans uh, reacted angrily to Speaker Pelosi, yanking, telling that she would not accept two of the uh, appointments because to the committee because it was two members who were kind of actively um, involved in sort of sending disinformation about the riots. Uh, and actively, uh, essentially supporting uh, the rioters, as it were. So there were no Republicans appointed by Republicans in the committee room yesterday for the opening of the select committee. Um, it's a good question whether that was a good strategy on uh, the B McCarthy, the minority leader's part. Uh, the two Republicans in the room have, uh, are very tough. They've shown every time there's been an opportunity that they're willing to break with Trump uh, to vote to impeach him. Uh, on Kinsinger's part. So uh, Republicans are left outside the chamber, uh, not really able, uh, not outside that committee, not able to be at the table to give a counter narrative. Uh, and so yesterday and the select committee going forward will be a different narrative. It'll be Democrats and Billy trying to kind of quash Republican questioning of what, what happened uh, in their defense of Trump. So Democrats I think will regain as best one, it's hard to regain narrative in American politics, but I think uh, with Republicans, uh, apart from the two not in the room, I think Democrats will gain a little upper hand in how the issue is framed and how the investigation is framed going forward. Great, thank you. Um, you mentioned the Senate and how things are, are a little bit different in the Senate. Um, of course, most legislation requires 60 votes in the Senate, so that sort of necessitates some bipartisanship, except for reconciliation bills, which, which we'll talk about. But thinking about recent headlines about the current infrastructure proposal that a bipartisan group of senators have worked on, they announced over a month ago they had a deal, yet we really haven't seen a deal. Um, 
So I would like you to assess the bipartisan cooperation going on in the Senate right now, both in general and on the infrastructure bill. Is it real? Is it strategic? Um, and what is it likely to yield? So uh, that's a great question. And there are kind of two different views about um, both the Senate, but also about Congress more generally and bipartisanship. One view says that we've just totally overestimated how partisan the place is and that things become partisan because the media shines a spotlight on it. And if the media just went away and let people negotiate, they'd come out with a bipartisan deal. And this view often, sometimes people call it the secret Congress, right? That out of the public eye, it's possible to get Republicans and Democrats to come to the table together because I guess the theory goes, no one else is actually watching. Um, there's, there's some amount of truth to that. We do see in the last Congress, in the last couple of Congresses, an opioids uh, bill. Uh, there have been, what was there, uh, a lands bill, kind of landmark lands bill in the last Congress. Uh, there has been some movement in the committees on infrastructure, but that's apart from the negotiations. But I think that probably overestimates how much bipartisanship there is. When we do see it, um, it's a struggle, right? As you suggested about the bipartisanship on uh, the infrastructure bill. Now, how do I normally think about this? And we can come to why it doesn't quite fit this time. Usually we think like there has to be an incentive for both parties to go to the bargaining table, right? There has to be an incentive because otherwise one party, and we see this on immigration, we see it on entitlement reform, right? We see it on all sorts of issues where one party thinks they're not gonna pay a cost if they say no, right? And if one party thinks that they're gonna be rewarded for saying no, then they don't go to the bargaining table in the first place. And I think they try not to be in the bargaining table They try not to negotiate because then the pressure builds on them to do to come out with something. So oftentimes we don't, we don't see the first step taken of going to the table. So why then do we get both parties at the table? It, it tends to be that both parties fear being blamed, right? That they, that they don't want to be fingered for the ones blocking something popular, right? Because lawmakers like to vote for popular things. And infrastructure, you, you would think, is one of those issues where they don't really want to be blamed for, for killing off investments in roads and bridges, right? Things that are very, very visible and generally favorably uh, looked upon by voters back home. Broadband for rural areas, right? There's kind of a whole at Metro uh, Transit Authorities, uh, transit funding from uh, urban areas. So that's the type of issue where the two parties really sh should be able to come to an outcome, to an agreement. I think, and as best I can tell, looks like the Senate will finally get uh, an agreement uh, to the floor that they'll get 60 votes to put it on the floor tonight, it looks like. So progress, they are making progress. My guess is if they've gotten this far, it will happen. The weird thing about this one is that looming in the background is the threat and probably uh, that the Democrats will push a Democrats only version of infrastructure, uh, social infrastructure, uh, healthcare, education, uh, more job training, right? Things that Republicans have said are off the table that are not actually in their view infrastructure. So on the one hand, you could imagine some Democrats saying, well, why should we agree to this version when we've got this silver great uh, train coming down the pike where we don't need Republican votes? But my hunch is it's important enough to the Biden administration. It's important enough to, the, to their reputation as kind of seeking, making government work again. And the contrast to the Trump administration, 
which could not get infrastructure week done. So my guess is infrastructure happens. It's it's both as you asked, is it genuine? Yeah. Is it strategic? Yeah, there's probably a little bit <laughs> a little bit of that too, because they don't really want to be blamed uh, for holding up something that at the end of the day is pretty popular. So but we'll we'll know more. Uh, and of course it's the Senate. So just because they have an agreement <laughs> could be another week. <laughs> Right. And of course, it's the Senate. So there was a gang working on it. So in your response, um, you anticipated part of my next question, which has to do with pairing it with reconciliation. And for those outside the Beltway, um, this is complicated, right? Um, so it's a combination of getting getting enough votes, because in order to get the Democratic votes, there has to be that promise, but not turning off so many Republicans um, that they can't get at least 60 votes with this sort of promise of a, of a Democrats-only reconciliation bill with Vice President Harris breaking the tie. But can we back up can, and can you explain to our audience sort of what reconciliation is and why it only requires 51 votes, um, how often it can be used and why it's so important to Democrats and any party in unified government where they don't have 60 votes? Um, sure. So the I think the, the most efficient way to describe it is Congress wrote a budget act uh, in 1974, they hadn't had a real budget process, a congressional budget before then, and had a couple steps. They lay out a blueprint called a resolution. Uh, there was a second res second blueprint at the end of the year after they'd done all their spending, spending bills and so forth. And then there was a little opportunity for a little bit of the cleanup, right? What if your blueprint wanted this amount of money, but we spent this amount of money? Well, we need to close the gap. We need to raise some more money for the government or we need to cut spending. And that was the reconciliation bill. It, was, it wasn't intended to be like this star uh, vehicle leaving the station where majority parties could toss all their uh, laundry in it and in their Christmas trees, as it were, mixing all the metaphors at once. Um, it was supposed to be like the cleanup at the end. And because it was the cleanup at the end and it was deemed to be something that you wanted to make sure would uh, go quickly because it was literally in the calendar at the very end, right before the fiscal year started. It was like five or six days if everything went according to plan. And so there's a filibuster ban in it, so, which means technically there's a time limit, means you don't need 60 votes because you don't need what we call cloture. You don't have to cut off debate. The clock cuts off debate. So reconciliation exists in the law. 74 takes a couple of years uh, before uh, was the Carter administration figured it out in 1980, said, hey, this is convenient. <laughs> you can't, the, the, the was Democrat, unified party control. Republicans couldn't filibuster. They did a little bit of reconciliation. And then the Reagan administration really figured out what a powerful tool it was. And subsequently, every year as Congress has gotten more partisan and the parties have disagreed with each other, both intrinsically or strategically, reconciliation has come this like life of its own. It's always hanging out there that a majority party can pass it with 50 or 51 votes because it can't be filibustered. Now, sounds like ideal if you were a majority party, you just like pull off reconciliation uh, off the shelf whenever you wanted. Turns out um, senators, Senator Byrd from West Virginia, Democrat, and Howard Baker, Republican from Tennessee in the 1980s were on to their colleagues. Uh, and Byrd in particular saw him kind of like to defend the point of the Budget Act. Uh, and they created what's now, we now call the Bird Rule. It's actually in the law, but we call it the Bird Rule. And that puts some limits of what you can stuff into the reconciliation train. Um, 
it's a kind of complicated rule. And so we try not ever to have to explain, <laughs> explain it if we don't have to. Um, but it does pair back. It tells majority parties, if you're doing something just to regulate, uh, create a new healthcare program or uh, create energy standards, right? You can't really do that in reconciliation. It has to be pretty narrowly tied to raising money for the government or reducing spending. And that has curtailed uh, the use of reconciliation at the outs just the outskirts. Um, earlier this year, there's an effort by the Democrats to raise the minimum wage that uh, private industries or uh, businesses are required to pay. Sounds kind of regulatory. Yeah. And uh, they were not able to waive the bird rule. That takes 60 votes to do away with the bird rule. So it's a great opportunity for majority parties, um, but it's by no means like the magic solution to advancing their uh, priorities. Great, thank you. So your response, uh, talking about one uh, Democratic Senator from West Virginia, Robert Byrd, um, leads me to my next question about the significance of Joe Manchin, um, a, a Democrat from West Virginia, a state that Trump won um, by near, with nearly 70% of the vote. Um, so Senator Manchin, uh, along with Senator Sinema to some extent, has really been a thorn in Democrats' side as sort of that you know 50th vote for Democratic priorities, including potentially a reconciliation bill, and then also potential Democratic efforts to, to do away with the, with the filibuster. On the one hand, he's not up for re-election until 2024. On the other hand, it seems like he is really committed institutionally to, to the filibuster. Um, so this, I guess, is a two-part question. The first is, you know, how do you view the role of Joe Manchin? And then, uh, and then the second question is, given your you know, vast expertise on the filibuster, um, it would be great if you could clear up some misconceptions about the origin of the filibuster, sort of the history of its uses in reform, um, and what reform might look like today. So that was a long two-part question. Sure. So Joe, Joe Manchin, what do we what do we make of what make of him and his role in the Democratic Party? Um, so I, I view Manchin um, as it's like a reminder of the difficulty that Democrats have, even when they can win the Electoral College. But it's the difficulty Democrats have building and securing a majority in both, let alone a supermajority uh, in the Senate and in both chambers, right? For Democrats to win majorities, they basically have to win on purple, on swing turf, right? They and sometimes have to go into more, um, slightly more rural turf as well, right? Because Democratic voters tend to live in more urban areas. So they are what we call wasted in a lot of districts and Republican voters, tend to live in more sparsely populated places, right? Even just think about, right, Minnesota, right? Where, where Democrats live versus up on the range where, where Republicans live. And so Republicans naturally are gonna have a greater chance of getting to a majority of this number of seats. And so Democrats, whenever they have won of late, it's been in the reaction to a, basically a Republican failure, whether it was the Republican administration after Katrina and Iraq and the financial crisis, Right. Or whether it was response to uh, the Trump administration in 2018 over and health care reform. So Democrats 
they're used to having the outer edges of their party being somewhat moderate to conservative. And this is like an extreme case, right? The party has shrunk all the way down to 50 votes, but they still have it, right? It's made by Joe Manchin. Um, and if we might think about Arizona in the context of that swingy seat, right? Even those two Democrats in the Senate, uh, Cinema represents someone who's been a little more, even in her House career, uh, been a more of a, a moderate Democrat than a, than a liberal one. So he's playing that. I mean, that's his position here. Um, it's to the extreme, I think, because it's West, in part, it's West Virginia and it's who Manchin is. He's you know, elected office for many years in the state. Um, and his natural inclinations here are towards cons conservatives or sort of not being willing uh, to give up on the tools that a, a middle of the road senator would like to use, whether in the minority or, or the majority. So, and it's just sort of stark. I think uh, Joe, uh, John Tester, who's Montana, right? Trump also won that by so many, uh, you know, probably just probably 70%, probably the, roughly the same. And yet uh, Tester is pretty, a pretty sort of a populist Democrat. So we, we don't really, he's not usually the one that's hold, holding out. So it's a problem for Democrats. If it wasn't Tester, it would be uh, cinema and uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't a mansion. And Man Manchin provides cover for other Democrats. Uh, Shaheen, for instance, from New Hampshire, who's again, that's a purple state uh, through and through. So it's hard to know how much Manchin is out there by himself and how much his opposition soaks up uh, and provides cover for Democrats who are not quite on board uh, with Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders in there. Uh, in their in their party. Um, Great, yeah, thank you. That was that was a very helpful explanation of sort of Mansion and the Democratic coalition more generally in the struggles. And one, of course, um, you know, big issue where Mansion has been criticized by Democrats is his lack of interest in doing away with the filibuster for legislation, uh, whether it's targeted for voting rights or more generally. Um, and so. Could you speak to sort of the origins of the filibuster, how it's changed, and um, what the prospects for reform are? Um, sure. And the way you put it, that he's just very disinterested in it is like a great way to, to think about it. It's just like, how many times can I tell you people, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in reforming it? Um, so a couple of things on the kind of things we misunderstand about the filibuster, and then we can think about these uh, reform options. I think, and some of these are, I think senators are very slowly changing and coming to terms with what the reality, the his, reality of the history is. Um, many senators and others think it was part of the original design for the Senate. Some people think it's in the Constitution. Some people think it was in there in 1789. Um, neither of those really are true. The framers, uh, many of whom uh, had been delegates in the Congress that sat before we had the Constitution, they were frustrated by supermajority rules. They wrote about it. Uh, in fact, the Constitution gives authority to the House and Senate to write their own rules. And one of the reasons was they were hoping that They'd write rules uh, that were going to tie the tie these chambers in knots, uh, like the Confederation Congress uh, had been. So we see the origins of the filibuster very early on in the Senate. Um, in my view of the world, uh, my view of the history it was a bit of an accident. 
Uh, I don't think senators really understood what they were doing when they cleaned up the rule book and got rid of the rule that the House would eventually use uh, as a majority, what we call majority cloture, right? As a majority ready to cut off debate. So they got rid of that rule. Takes decades before they realize, gee, that was stupid. Uh, You have century really of Senate leaders trying to reinstate or to ban the filibuster. Takes a long time. World War I comes and eventually there's kind of a meeting of the minds. Uh, Woodrow Wilson as president gets involved uh, and kind of uh, narrowing and focusing and burning an effigy the senators who were blocking the Senate from adopting uh, its first cloture rule. So the Senate has lived a long time. It's an age old problem for the Senate, uh, the filibuster. Leaders have tried to get rid of it. both parties, when they've been in the majority, have taken steps to kind of pare back how much power uh, the minority party has, but it persists. Uh, it's been banned, obviously, for nominations and for Supreme Court justices. Um, so in my view, the long march here, the big arc here is trending toward majority rule in the Senate, but they're not they're not there yet. And because of folks like Joe Manchin and colleagues who recognize that there's some value to senators to be able to use the rules to their advantage, um, that they fear losing if there's no filibuster. Others worry that the Senate will look just like the House. Um, I'm a little skeptical about that. So it, it brings us to today where there is an awful lot of pressure coming from activists in the Democratic Party and from many uh, senators, Democratic senators themselves, to ban the filibuster so that Democrats can make progress on in particular voting rights uh, reform, which they think is probably most paramount for them, Uh, DC statehood. Uh, You can imagine other issues where even though there's, we don't know that there's actually uh, 50 votes, Democratic votes for it, but there's an awful lot of pressure to carve out an exception uh, of the filibuster for particularly for voting rights. Um, They could do that. Um, it would be it would look something like what the Democrats did in 2013 when they carved out a filibuster ban for nominations. It would look like what senators did, uh, the Republicans did in 2017. They carved out another exception for filibuster Supreme Court nominations. Can't do that anymore. So this would be another tweak. Uh, what we we think of, we might go on the legislative side here, the legislative filibuster. It would be carving out an exception to say when there's something related to voting rights on the Senate floor, you just need 51 votes to cut off debate. Um, that could happen. Uh, politically, it doesn't seem like they have Manchin's vote or cinemas and possibly others to do it. Um, but technically, technically, it could be done. I think there's worry in the Democrats' part, some of them, that if you carve out one exception, that opens the floodgate to getting rid of it altogether. And they might not actually be quite on board worrying about uh, a future Republican Senate. Great, thank you. Um, that's uh, that's certainly a hot topic in DC right now. Um, let's turn back to the House of Representatives, uh, the majoritarian institution where they only need 218 votes and talk about the Democratic Party. Um, they only have what I think it's about 222 votes. And so they have a pretty narrow, uh, pretty narrow majority. And um, although the conflicts in the Democratic Party are not highlighted as often as the conflicts within the, the Democratic Party in the Senate, um, there certainly are some. Uh, 
with the most progressive wing um, and the more moderate wing, those more worried about re-election. So what are the biggest conflicts uh, within the Democratic Party in the House? Are they ideological? Are they strategic? Um, are they personal? And, and how do you see Speaker Pelosi um, in navigating those conflicts? Is she doing a good job? Um, sure. So um, since I read your work on leadership, uh, I'm akin to thinking about uh, the party leaders and, and the, the challenges they face, particularly the speaker, in sort of looking at conflict within, within their own party, for sure. Um, those conflicts, in many ways, are very real. There is a growing, I would say, sort of a, a growing size of what we think of as progressives, progressive Democrats in the House. Progr the progressive caucus itself, I think, is maybe a third or more uh, of, the, of the House Democratic caucus. Um, but they haven't quite wielded uh, the type of power that we've seen, for instance, when Republicans were in control and there was the House Freedom Caucus, right? And I, which caused all sorts of dilemmas, I think, well, cost two speakers their jobs, but it, it, it caused dilemmas for Republicans during a, when there's a Democratic Senate, for sure, and a Democratic president. It's, I'm, I remind, I'm reminded here when Pelosi, a couple, must have been in 20. 19, there was a couple of issues on the funding and defunding of ICE. Uh, and there was a lot of concern amongst what we call the squad of uh, AOC and colleagues um, who wanted to vote against something uh, was opposed to what the Democratic caucus was doing. And Pelosi said, she said, you know, the squad is just four votes. And at just four votes, it just wasn't enough. Right. If they had a larger uh, coalition, well, then she'd have to pay attention to them. Well, they are larger um, this this year, this Congress. Um, and in many ways, they have flexed their muscles. And I think they flex their muscles in part because Pelosi has empowered them to, to do so. And this issue of reconciliation. Right. They Pelosi said, I guess it was last week, she said, when this bipartisan infrastructure bill passes the Senate, I'm not putting it on the floor until the Senate does the reconciliation bill on infrastructure. Now, in some way, she's lending a hand here to the Biden White House. Although what I think she's really doing is solving the problem she has in the House where progressives are not going to vote um, for a bipartisan bill that is watered down if they can't get their own priorities, Democratic priorities in the reconciliation bill. So they do have more power here. And it's odd. It's almost kind of, I dare say, it's clipped the wind, wings of Mansion in this in the Senate because he can't get no one can get that bipartisan bill if Pelosi sticks to her word not to move on reconciliation. So those progressives that split, Pelosi is trying to manage the split. Think I think here, and we'll see where it goes because uh, it's going to be I think a while before reconciliation comes over uh, comes over from the other chamber. And of course, she has swing district Democrats who aren't wild about throwing in their lot uh, with progressives. Uh, and she's got no, as you said, look, this is like for a four seat advantage there. Um, so there's not a lot of margin for error here. Um, at the end of the day, Pelosi's proof that she can kind of deliver votes when it counts. Um, my favorite example, <laughs> this was back in, must've been 2011 on an issue when they wound up in issues over the debt limit. And there was a bill that, that totally divided Democrats. 
And at the end of the day, the Democrat, the Democratic vote, she they were in the minority, was split. 95 voted for it, 95 voted against it. It's like that's Nancy Pelosi's doing. <laughs> she didn't want one side to win or the other. Even the Sanchez sisters from California, one voted for it, one voted against it. So Pelosi has uh, some political skills here. Um, certainly put to the test in this current Senate, uh, current uh, Congress. Um, but uh, that's like the, the dilemma, I think, for her largely uh, is within the Democratic Party. I think the way she's handled uh, the minority leader in this question over the appointments to the select committee, her willingness to use her right under the rules not to seat those members on the select committee suggests she's really not worried about the, <laughs> about the Republicans at all. Um, maybe an optics problem, uh, for sure. Um, but I think she sees uh, her dilemma is building majorities, uh, as most speakers do worry about. Great, thank you. And uh, a great question from the audience and something you said about the debt limit um, has prompted the next question, which of course is that the hitting the debt ceiling is fast approaching. And how do you think the politics of raising the debt limit will play out um, in the coming months? So that's a great, that's a good question. Uh, so what has to happen here, I think it's the end of August, uh, the technical date, uh, I guess in 2019, the Congress uh, and the president suspended the debt limit, meaning that we're not going to worry about it till date certain. And that date is coming soon, I think, at the end of August. Usually, the Treasury has the ability to do some fancy hijinks to give themselves more time uh, before they run up into the limit of how much debt the government can issue. So Republicans have said, we're not going to help you. Uh, so Democrats if that's true, have to figure out a way to do it in a reconciliation bill. And it's relatively easy to do that in a reconciliation bill. They could, in theory, could spin off just a debt limit reconciliation bill. That's all it did. A couple complications there. One is technical. You can't suspend it in a, because of the bird rule, we think you can't just suspend the debt limit. You have to raise it to a particular amount. And so everybody knows what debt limit everybody's voting for. So it raises a political problem. So Democrats would probably prefer to put it in a big honking uh, spending bill, is my guess, which is the way it's been done recently. Put in a big spending bill. Republicans will vote thinking that Republicans will vote for it to basically share the blame for raising the debt limit and allowing them to suspend it. Um, but the question is, will Republicans hold through on their threat not to, not to help out? So um, I don't think anybody knows quite uh, how it's going to play out. Um, there's always a worry, a risk that uh, failing uh, to address it could, would in theory lead the government to default. In the past years, there have been some, I would say, Republican theories that that's okay, uh, that the government, the Treasury, in fact, could find a way uh, to deal with that. But um, I think there's a lot of suspicion amongst financial people about whether, in fact, that's actually true. So that's hanging over the heads, for sure, of Democratic Party leaders. Thank you. 
our conversation about Speaker Pelosi and sort of her legislative skill uh, raises for me questions about two women in the Republican Party in the House. Um, and if you had told me, you know, a couple of years ago that Elise Stefanik would replace Liz Cheney as Republicans number three leader in the House, um, I would have never believed it. You know, she's quite moderate, um, was uh, against President Trump when he was running in the first place, um, didn't vote for some of his major legislative priorities, and now is, is the number three leader after an about face. And Liz Cheney, with a solid Republican record, um, is out and sort of leading her own charge. Um, how do you see this and how do you see this playing out going forward, particularly with Liz Cheney's future? Well, I mean, it's just it's a kind of reminder that there are very few, if you want to call them anti-Trumpers, left in the House Republican conference, right? And I'm tempted to say we can count them in two, two fingers with Kinzinger uh, and, and Cheney. And there may be some others, but they don't seem, maybe two or three others, but they don't really seem willing to go on record uh, challenging Trump. So the the fact that Cheney is out of leadership and Stefanik is in precisely because of the issue of Trump. And in some ways, it, I guess it's less surprising that he has become the defining issue uh, and cause, uh, if not litmus, litmus test uh, within the House Republican conference. Um, so on the one hand, yeah, it's a statement about uh, where the Republicans are uh, as a as a party. What does it say? I guess the other issue to think about is really how relatively few women there are in the House Republican conference. Numbers were up quite a bit, in part because of the work of uh, Representative Stefanik in the last election. Kind of like her own, uh, I would think it was like the Emily's List of the of the of the Republicans. Right, finding, but as an elected member, personally recruiting and helping and helping to finance and to fund uh, more Republican women. Um, of course, you're the expert on, <laughs> on women. I don't need to. <laughs> you you should totally uh, totally weigh in. Um, so the question is, if if that's the Stefanik mode, uh, the new the new Stefanik, will she will she still be as effective in recruiting women if that's become the mode? Um, and I, I kind of wonder, wonder about that. And then maybe the whole uh, sort of pro-Trump has like infused enough of the Republican uh, likely candidates that maybe it doesn't doesn't matter. But I am kind of struck uh, how instrumental she seems to have been in really expanding re Republicans, women in the Republican conference uh, in the 2020 election and whether or not um, her turn of events, uh, her turn of personality or turn of stance here um, will really uh, allow her to do that again. Although granted now she's in the leadership, so maybe it's easier to raise money and uh, to deploy it. But um, I'll be kind of curious going forward in 2022, what role she's, she's playing. Right, what role she's playing and what role uh, former President Trump is playing in the 2022 midterms as well. Is it an active role? Is Does it hinge on his own plans for, for 2024? Um, what do you think? What do you think his future is? So there's a lot of talk uh, last night and today on Trump's uh, ability uh, to play a, a meaningful role in getting people he supports elected. Um, there was a special election in Texas and the candidate that he endorsed uh, lost. Uh, so 
it's not to say that the person he uh, who won uh, the runoff because it's, it's like a special election. Um, not to say the person who won, well, there's so many double negatives about to be in the sentence. I, I need to like unravel <laughs> unravel myself, but the person who won may yet be a very strong pro-Trump pro, uh, position. However, if the story coming out of last night, we don't know anything about one's power as former president from one election, but politicians and pundits like to create narratives about it. And the narrative coming out is, well, maybe his endorsement strategy is not that good. And maybe his endorsements uh, will have the opposite effect. And certainly in a general election, maybe uh, and there's just a piece, I think, uh, in legislative studies quarterly looking at that, but right? it has the opposite effect of generating outcome uh, turnout amongst Democrats uh, when Trump is endorsed on the, on the, the Republican side. So um, I think we don't know enough about whether or not Trump can really be a powerful force through the endorsement mechanism. But Republicans do seem worried about him, right? They seem worried that he's going to tell Republicans, take his cards and go home. Uh, sort of like the Georgia uh, Senate, special Senate, uh, the runoffs, I'm sorry, the general election for the two general Georgia, uh, Georgia Senate seats uh, in early January, where the Democrats won, and in part, uh, close elections, one of them, uh, but in part because Republicans seem to have been uh, turned off uh, by Trump claims that everything was uh, stolen in the presidential election. So um, it's possible that that Trump, in fact, is counterproductive for the Republicans, but they seem worried that he's going to tell their voters to go home. Uh, and so flattering him, keeping him, uh, keeping him in the loop, I think, there seems to be some uh, not yet willing to turn their back on Trump. And as you suggested, nobody really knows in 2024 whether he'll run, uh, whether he'll end up running. Thank you. So at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the sources of partisan polarization, the ideological conflict, the uh, teamsmanship, the electoral concerns, sort of the narrow margins, um, the shadow of Trump and the loyalty to Trump. It also seems that in the wake of January 6, party leaders seem to dislike one another more than ever. I think just this morning, Pelosi was talking about calling uh, the McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, a moron. Um, and so is it your sense that Republican leaders and Democratic leaders indeed dislike each other more than ever, and that that is spilled onto members, especially in the House, rank and file members, not trusting one another and disliking one another? And if so, uh, how, how does one go forward and, and remedy this in the future? So that's a great, uh, it's a great question. And sometimes it's always hard to know quite how well leaders get along or communicate. Uh, I think the record is probably pretty strong that Pelosi seemed able quite well to deal with John Boehner um, and to some degree, I think, uh, with uh, Paul Ryan. But those Republicans aren't there anymore. <laughs> there anymore, And McCarthy's thrown in his lot with Trump. And that, that seems to be the breaking point uh, for, uh, for Speaker Pelosi. So on the one hand, what does it mean? Well, it often means just like the number twos. Uh, so Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, or on the Republican side, um, that that those types of relationships that might, communication that might've happened at the speaker minority leader level are happening uh, at, at, at the lower level. But the broader issue here, um, the sort of toxic nature in the, the House, and we, we see it just played out over 
all sorts of issues, right, over uh, the Democrats' invention of proxy voting on the floor because of the COVID restrictions. But now those you can still do proxy voting, even though we're not in the heat of uh, what the country went through uh, back in, in 20, uh, earlier in the winter of 2021. So the proxy voting, you see these disagreements on the um, magnometers uh, outside the House chambers, Republicans uh, not wanting to go through them. The mask mandate, which has reappeared in the House today, uh, stories of sort of kind of bristling and altercations over the wearing of masks and on the House floor speeches about it. Um, what it, all these issues, they just keep, they don't go, they don't go away. And I think you hear it. I was listening to this Jamie Raskin uh, House member questioning in the Rules Committee uh, during the appropriations bill of this House uh, Republican who downplayed I mean, the riots. Just the, the level of distrust is certainly higher than anything you ever saw, I think, over the last decade or two, for sure. And it it's more visceral than it's been in the past. And again, us political scientists, you know, we like to measure things. We can't really, I'm sure somebody can measure this, but uh, we, I can't. Um, but this notion that it's about their personal safety, uh, that's new. I mean, it's not just that they don't trust each other. I get the sense they, that, that Democrats don't trust Republicans to keep them safe. And that's like an existential problem in the House. What does it mean in practice? It means... I think on the, on the lower level, like the types of, of bipartisanship, the type of cooperation you might have seen in a state delegation or in pairs of lawmakers, that some Democrats have said, I'm no longer co-sponsoring your bills, right? I'm no longer going to work with you on an issue of local importance. And how much of that is there is, I don't know. But it's part of this issue that, you know, below the surface, there is in a constrained space, a fair amount of bipartisanship at that local kind of parochial level, right? Working on an issue of the Great Lakes or working on an issue of farmers in Oklahoma, right? There have been opportunities for those relationships to build, even though we don't see them, right, in the public in the public Congress. Um, I think those are kind of drying up, uh, which is un unfortunate because just suggests like this partisanship is seeping even in, into places in committee rooms where there might've been some uh, insulation from it uh, in the past. So is there, is there a way out of it? Um, sort of thinking broadly, and then one questioner specifically asks, what about term limits? So I don't know that there's a short-term way out of this. All right. I think some depends on what happens if Republicans win back control, as many people believe they will in the House elections. What does the House, what do they do with that power? Um, does anything reforms or anything uh, changes come out of an investigation January 6th? So in the, in the short term, I'm not, uh, I don't think there's chance of much in, improving that atmosphere. Over time, turnover will make a difference, but that's, uh, that's over time. Right. And also depends, as you sort of suggested, what happens with uh, Trump and his position in the, in the party. So would term limits make a difference? I think it, on the one hand, it might produce more <laughs> quickly, more turnover. So perhaps so. Um, I think from folks who study term limits in the state, at the state legislative level, where we have um, 50 states, some of which 
have term limits, some of which don't. There's a fair amount of kind of variation to study. I think most of the studies have shown that it's not really creating more competition for seats, in part because everybody gets locked in. I'm going to spend my six years in the house, my eight years in the house, and then I'm going to move to this, right? It's kind of regularized the conflict uh, and, and the people's careers in, in the in the two chambers uh, across the state. So I don't know that term limits is necessarily a, a, a fix. There's also a concern it undermines kind of expertise, right? It, more power to lobbyists who are there longer as opposed to house members who are, who would have much shorter uh, time periods or, or senators. So I'm a little skeptical that term limits is a solution, even though it might draw in more blood, more new blood, but I don't, we don't really know what the new blood's gonna look like uh, uh, in the short term. Right. Right, thank you. And, and I'm thinking of some of the studies that have shown that it also gives more power in states that have it to the governors um, as well at the expense of the legislature because they lose some of their expertise and Congress seemingly you know, is, is spending less time in committees than before. So it, I guess it could be worse. Um, so I wanna turn to some very quick questions following up on uh, our discussion of the filibuster. And the first is just uh, a simple definition of a filibuster. And the second is, um, what about requiring senators to actually talk the whole time instead of these two separate tracks? Um, sure. So, so it's a good question. What exactly is, is a filibuster? So I think of a filibuster is any effort to hold up to the Senate, to block or delay the Senate from actually getting to a vote, right? That's what it's all about is by any, whether it's offering endless amendments or trying to amendments to adjourn or off or refusing to vote for what we call cloture that requires 60 votes to cut off debate. Um, filibusters is trying to block the Senate from moving forward. And typically that means getting to a vote on whatever it is you're trying to vote on. So some people have pointed to this, uh, what we now call the talking filibuster, right? And maybe that's a solution. So what's a talking filibuster? Well, if you look at the Senate floor, and there'll be a probably a cloture vote later uh, tonight on infrastructure. Um, usually a cloture vote, what happens is the majority has to get to 60. And it doesn't matter how many uh, vote no, you have to get to 60. And so all the attention, all the intensity, it's about the vote. So you don't have to show up on the floor to filibuster if you are opposed to advancing. All you have to do is either not show up, not vote I for cloture or vote against cloture. And that's not that hard. That is what we think of as kind of as kind of not very costly to a senator. Yeah, it's got to stick around a little bit, cast a vote, but doesn't have to give a speech, doesn't have to wear comfy shoes and talk for 15 hours, doesn't have to read green eggs and ham, right? That's hard, right? That's a commitment of time. Uh, it's a commitment of staff effort, your effort. It's disruptive, right? So the idea behind the talking filibuster is, well, what if we tried to, if we could, make senators talk, right? If you really care deeply about something, if you really didn't want to have an external commission on January 6th, we'll make senators go to the floor and hold the floor and talk and talk and talk and talk. Now, it gets a little fuzzy after there. Some people say, well, then there'd just be a cloture vote. Some people say, well, then there'd be a majority cloture vote. So I don't think these reforms are really worked out very well. But the idea here is Jimmy Stewart, for those uh, old enough to recall, um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He's like, 
dying and he's perspirating and he's like flailing on the floor, but he refuses to give up, right? The idea is that, well, we'll just wear them down. Would it work? I'm kind of skeptical. Um, Many senators like the limelight. Um, Senators, if they thought it would get them a lot of attention, be uh, it, it would if they thought it would be like start trending on Twitter like it did with Rand Paul's quote unquote stand with Rand I think was the hashtag um, he raised money off it um, we're still talking about uh, Cruz that was like a fake talking filibuster about green eggs and ham so I think in when the Republicans or when the Democrats are in the minority they might welcome the chance to take the spotlight, right? Even on the January 6th commission, which seems crazy, but they'd come up, I'm sure, with a reason why they'd like like the attention. So I don't really think a talking filibuster uh, would work. Although um, it might be nice if they tried something (laughs) to do it. And just a real quick uh, question. Has Congress become a place where it's hard for serious legislators to succeed? Are we seeing sort of some signs of that with some surprising retirements from the Senate um, and sort of the ubiquity of Twitter for members of Congress? So I would say it's been it's been that way at least since the early 1990s, right? We saw moderates quitting and it was the folks in the middle of the middle of the spectrum, right? Because you might, those might be the ones who had an incentive to, to kind of work out compromises. Uh, the Warren Rudmans of the world from New Hampshire, the Durenbergers uh, from Minnesota, right? So the, the folks who've been complaining since the 1990s when they retired that Congress was just no more, was not fun anymore. It was too much deadlock, right? That's not new. Uh, but I do imagine it seems that the number of folks like that is shrinking, right? The Rob Portman's of the world, who seems to be the one who was nailed, finally nailed down an infrastructure agreement. He had a long, long career in the executive branch and the judicial branch uh, in, the, in, in Congress. He's calling it quits. Attila's calling it quits. And I think at the end of the day, there are very, very few left, but we this is supposed to be a short answer. We don't really know because there's so few opportunities for senators in particular, but lawmakers to kind of like make a difference, right? Things show up in these small gains. Just because you sort of working in a committee doesn't mean your committee product's going to make it to the floor. So everything is so centralized in party leader offices that there's not a lot of room left for the senators and lawmakers to make a difference. Great. Well, Professor Bender, this has been outstanding. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insight with us. And I'm going to turn the virtual microphone back over to Professor Jacobs. Thanks for all the awesome questions. Thanks to both of you. This was absolutely terrific. And um, I think a, a lot of folks have gotten a much clearer idea of what's actually going on in Congress. There's a lot of um, you know, name calling and so forth. But I, but I think the analysis you've provided takes us behind the scenes so you can understand why what's what's going on is going on. And that's the key question, not just to have a a sort of emotional reaction, but to understand the why question. So thank you very much, Professor Pearson. And thank you very much, Sarah Binder, for joining us from Washington, D.C., where you are hard at work explaining all this to us all the time. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much.